When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. and welcome to the EDH RecCast. My name is Joey Schultz and I'm joined, as always, by my fantastic co-hosts. Up first, when he heard that stickers are going to be in Black Border, he said, dang, that sounds really unappealing. It's Matt Morgan. So I, when I was in high school, I worked at a movie theater and I thought people kind of looked down on me for doing that, but it turns out I was just projecting. <laughs> yeah. because so So, Joey... I don't know if you know this, but like movie theaters, mm. you you take the camera and you put it up onto a big white screen. <laughs> I've it's heard like a TV. I've heard that explaining the joke makes it funnier, Matt. Thank you. <laughs> Sometimes people would drive to those theaters <laughs> and stay in their car. I'm not sure where this dad joke went, but it certainly went to some places. I'm not sure if they're funny places, but we're just going to move on. Is that all right, Matt? <laughs> That's fine. We, we we can get real with this and uh, move along. I love you. I love you so much. That was brilliant. That's, nice. That, I tried. Nice save. Anyway, up next, when he heard that stickers are going to be in Black Border, he said that he just hopes that players don't get too attached to them. It's Dana Roach. I eat stickers all the time, dude. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, so, so what bear is the most condescending? Um, a brown a bear? Panda. A panda. Yeah, Dana. The, the, the math tracks. <laughs> Dana, I can't. I can't get over that one. That one was. That was. That joke was pretty grisly. I'll admit. So. <laughs> anyway, the humor got black. This is the EDH Recast. <laughs> EDH Rec <laughs> is the best deck building resource on the web for the commander format, compiling data from deck lists all over the internet to provide helpful recommendations for new commander decks. And here on the podcast, we love to give all of that data a little more context. Y'all may be the death of me. Matt, what are we talking about on this week's episode? <laughs> so this week, we're going to talk about just some personal deck building mantras, some some principles that we bring to our own deck building processes and, and share it with you all here. Absolutely. Couldn't have said it better myself. I'm really excited to get into it. But before we do, we do want to have a very quick pause just to give out some awesome shout outs. Yeah, first, we'd like to thank Chase, a.k.a. Manic Curves, for their help with the post-production on the show. You can find them on Twitter at Manic Curves. Throwing in a quick update here, too, we also want to let people know that we will be attending the Magic Summit event in November. This is an event run by Kingdoms in Salt Lake City, Utah on November 11th through the 13th, and they've got a lot of really awesome guests lined up, including folks like Rachel Weeks, Esmond from Quintessential Commander, Sheldon Mennery, and Brandon Sanderson, and also us. So come hang out and play some games with us in November, and you can use the code EDHREC when you buy your ticket to the event, and that'll get you a 5% discount. We're just excited to hang out with you all at events, so don't be shy. Come say hi. We're just really happy to see all of our friends and to get in some rad games with our awesome listeners. One more time, that code is EDHREC when you buy your ticket at mtgsummit.com, and we'll see you in November. 
And if you would like to support the show directly, you can do so over at patreon.com slash edhretcast, where we have patron tiers of all sorts of levels, whether you want to join the Discord community that we have, chat with fellow like-minded Magic players, talking about all sorts of things that cover the format on the game we love, or you want to see all the episodes a day early, that we have all of that and more tiers over at patreon.com slash edhretcast. And as always, we do have that one special shout out every single week that just we thank a patron just for their support. And so this week we want to give a very special shout out to Sean McCart. So Sean, thank you so much. Uh, we put the appreciation in that cart and we're going to check it out. <laughs> Definitely appreciate it. And uh, thank you. <laughs> That's wonderful. Thank you so, so much, Sean, for your support. Thank you to all of our patrons. Y'all make the show happen. Okay, fellas, let's move into our topic now here. Matt, as you said, we are talking about deck building mantras, little rules, or maybe heuristics that we follow when we are putting a deck together ourselves. And Dana, I think this was a topic that you had put forward yourself. So I feel like maybe it's best to start the ball rolling with you. Um, what is the first thing, I guess, that comes to mind when you are putting a brand new deck together? What are these mantras that you like to follow? So I'll, I'll start with the one that jumps out at me the most, and, and that involves how much draw I want to put in the deck. And the answer is always more than <laughs> what I've than, than what I think is plenty. Okay. Um, and, and I think generally speaking, most people don't run enough card draw in their decks or they define it poorly maybe. Um, and the first thing I try to do almost every single time is I try to start with at least seven draw spells in a deck that draw me cards unconditionally and, and every single time. Hmm. Um, so what that means is, like, Consecrated Sphinx is a great card. I don't count Consecrated Sphinx as one of my draw sources. I can't consistently rely on playing Consecrated Sphinx and having it survive long enough to draw me cards. So if I'm playing, say, my Sphinx Tribal deck, I'm obviously going to put a Consecrated Sphinx into that deck, but that's not one of the things I'm counting on as one of my draw sources. Ristic Study is a fantastic card. I am not counting on Ristic Study as one of my draw sources in my deck because it can be removed before getting me cards into hand. I want at least, if possible, seven spells that will draw me cards unless somebody counters them, basically. And, and that's, a, that's a thing I think a lot of people kind of mess up to a degree. They, number one, don't draw enough draw, and number two, they're, they're relying on draw sources that don't consistently get them cards in the hand every time. Now, that's intriguing to me, Dana. What made you land on seven as that number? I mean, maybe it'll be eight and maybe it'll be six, but like that just feels like the number that if I start with that... And then I also wind up adding in that's that Consecrated Sphinx and that Ristic Study and that Midnight Clock and whatever else. Then I'm going to almost every time begin a game with one or two draw spells in hand and going to then perhaps use those draw spells to find another one, which will let me find another one, which will let me find another one, which will just <laughs> consistently keep me with more advantage than everyone else in the game has. Interesting. I do think most people don't have enough of that, and, and th that is where I found if I start with with that seven-ish number and and also have other things in the deck that do provide me with, you know, card draw as well, um, assuming everything breaks correctly, that's enough to keep me drawing more cards than everybody else. And that's a thing that lets you win games. Now, is that a rule that only applies to card draw stuff? Or do you also apply this rule to any other types of categories like removal or anything? Um, specifically card draw, because card draw affects everything else. 
you know, if you can get away with perhaps having slightly less removal in your deck if you're seeing that removal more frequently. The, the inertia that card draw provides you lets you get down to those removal spells faster, lets you find that that ramp spell a little bit faster, lets you find the, the win condition you have a little bit faster. So what's nice about card draw is it multiplies everything else that you have on your deck by letting you get to those things more frequently. Um, I'm not saying like I got a ton of draws, so I can only run two removal spells. It doesn't work that way necessarily, <laughs> but it just makes the amount of removal you have feel like it shows up much more frequently. See, that's a much more specific, but also like it, it's good that you have a very specific goal mm. in mind when you start building decks. My my goals that I, I have down in our notes that we'll go over, uh, they're not the specific, but at the <laughs> same time, it's also a good thing though. I think a lot of players could benefit from having you know, in the professional world, we talk about like smart goals and how they're specific, measurable, attainable, realistic, and timely. And so having something specific and measurable that you can hold yourself to, mm. that is a huge thing that like it doesn't just apply to magic decks. It applies to real life applications as well. So it, it's it's cool to see something that, you know, you see outside the magic world, but you can still benefit from knowing it in the game building your decks. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it, it just provides you with all of the opportunities. Like, draw is an opportunity, basically, in the game. It lets you continue to move forward, and it, it, it like I said, it multiplies the power of the things you already have. And uh, stressing the 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 fact that I want draw that works consistently, that's one of the things where, like, we've heard the conversation about, hey, Harmonize has gotten by bypassed in green mm. by the Rishkar's expertise of the world. And Rishkar's expertise is a crazy good card, and I absolutely run it in a bunch of green decks. But Harmonize still draws me three cards every single time. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter if there was a board wipe that just happened. It doesn't matter if someone has played... You know, a, a, something that like makes all my creatures zero ones. If there's just been a sudden spoiling or something, like it doesn't matter. I'm drawing three cards every time, regardless, and that's worth something. I think at least it is to me the consistency of that, knowing I have the ability to cast that spell and always draw something and wind up ahead, is something that I think is very, very important to just keeping a deck functioning smoothly. It's card mm -hmm. draw is the oil that kind of lubricates everything else. I feel that I especially like the lesson that I'm kind of taking away from you here isn't even necessarily about the exact number, but just about the self-reliance. Yeah. Like, are there cards that you can actually rely upon consistently to do their thing, regardless of any potential interaction that you might face bar, you know, a counter spell, obviously. Um, and, and I am personally, when I enter into a deck and maybe this is one of my, uh, I don't know if this is one of my mantras or like uh, an anti-heuristic maybe, but like I find myself personally very reticent to adopt to any specific formula. There are a lot of different deck building formulas out there that will say you should run X number of removal spells and X number of draw spells and X number of ramp and X number of win conditions and things like that. Because for me, those numbers have always tended to be all over the place anytime I try to brew something new. Like if I'm building a Tatiova deck, for example, my relationship to card draw is going to be very different because the commander itself is such a huge, powerful source of that card advantage. And even in littler ways, like in my Will Help deck, for example, that is a commander that just draws one extra card per turn, but 
I mean, that is actually pretty significant. That does actually change that deck's relationship to the necessities of card draw when the commander sort of functions like a Phyrexian arena every single turn. And that does uh, change my expectations or the ways that the deck feels like uh, the gears are all greased up and, and things like that. Um, th then there's also like when it comes to a number of lands even. Like I can't even commit to saying that like, oh, I definitely make sure that I start with at least this many lands. Like I think on average, most of my decks don't tend to go beneath 37 lands. But I don't know, when I built my Mimeoplasm deck, I think that deck's currently got 33 lands in it. When I built an Elf Tribal deck at one point, when I was experimenting with it, that deck had like 32 maybe. So like those things, I I've never found a formula that fits. But the lesson of the self-reliance is what I'll take away from you there. And then I wonder if, Matt, does that anti-heuristic thing resonate with you? Or are there formulas that you find that are actually kind of helpful? Are you different than me in that regard? I definitely don't use templates anymore. I don't use a guide of, okay, you start with this many of this except for Lance. <laughs> the only thing that I, I put a concrete, the first time I'm playing this deck full stop is I'm going to do it with 37 lands no matter what. That just, I want to make sure that if anything, I'm, I'm drawing enough lands consistently to get a feel for the deck. If it floods out, I can always take lands out. But if I don't ever get the deck going, mm. I, I don't like that feeling at all. I, I want, I would rather be flooded than having not enough lands because if I flood out, I'm able to cast every single spell as soon as I draw it. But if I never draw enough lands, then it, it you get into the situation where you're discarding all these cards you want to play test. And so when I'm first time running a deck, 37 lands full stop, other than that, I have zero, zero templates. I just, I don't like them because sometimes cards can cross different categories. And so it messes with the numbers. Yeah. So I, I don't like having a template to go off of other than I just, I put 37 lands in a pile and then I put a bunch of other cards in, in another pile and shuffle them together. Okay. I totally feel that. I remember someone making a comment about writing one time that was like, bad writers steal, good writers don't steal, great writers steal. <laughs> and, and, and to a degree, I think I think that that, that kind of axiom applies, and, and it was a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but like yeah. that axiom does apply to a lot of things. When you were first doing your, you know, your initial deck building in Magic, if you don't have some kind of a template, you're all over the place. It's, it's an absolute mess. So you can like say, you know, bad deck builders don't use a template. Good deck builders use a template. You move to that next step where you're like, okay, I need to have a few of these and a few of these and a few of these. But at some point, you maybe move beyond that. You've played enough, you've built enough decks where like, okay, now I realize the restrictions inherent in those templates and I don't necessarily need to follow them. But there's a point in your brewing where you maybe do. Mm. Um, it's just when you've been, you know, playing commander for ten years. Maybe you've moved beyond the the, the need to restrict yourself so much. I feel that. All right, so that was one from me and one from Dana. But now, Matt, it's your turn. What's one of your deck building mantras? So one of mine that I, I try to keep in mind for every single deck that I, I build is going to be playing cards that push the game forward. They advance it. Uh, so one thing that I don't really like doing is games stalling out where people always kind of get into this this situation where everybody's kind of drawing and hoping to get something that's going to make things happen again. It, and so it just, I would rather, and, and I've mentioned this before, I would rather be playing cards that punish people for doing something than stopping them from doing it altogether. Mm. That's something that it leads to these experiences where you're making sure that things are consistently happening. And I've found myself filling the same role for certain cards but replacing how they're specifically executed. For example, I've taken out Counterspell in a lot of my decks and put in Spell Swindle and Access Denied. So those types of cards where I'm still getting that Counterspell, getting that protection, 
but I'm advancing the board state still because I'm getting treasures, so I'm able to cast more spells later, or I'm getting creatures or whatever it is. So mm. those different types of effects, I'm still getting those. I'm still getting removal, but I'm I'm doing it in a way that's going to help advance the board state, advancing my game plan so that it's not just a flat, I stopped you from doing the thing, or I answered the thing, whatever it might be, It's there's, there's going to be added benefits to that. That's one thing that I've kind of tried to integrate into all of my decks. So it's like, I'm not stopping you from attacking with a ghostly prison. I'm playing Arachnogenesis to punish you for attacking me. <laughs> and also I'm going to attack you back. It's, 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 it's little things like that. And yeah, it, at first when you think about it, it's like, well, it doesn't make a big difference. But then when you come into situations where, oh, I suddenly, you know, there was a board wipe and then something else happened and I, I cast access denied. Well, I have the, you know, five creatures that I can suddenly attack with when I untap. It's a bunch of situations like that that have evolved my deck building process. So finding ways to get certain cards in or card categories, but advancing your own board state at the same time, I've found so much success in my own games by doing that throughout my decks. Can, can I also just point out really quick that like you chose some of the politest versions of you don't do the thing like ghostly prison like that's a perfectly sure, fine sure. card that is not like a pendrel mists level card or uh, everyone sacrifices no. all of their creatures or you don't untap all of your stuff like ghostly prison is just like a don't touch me kind of card so like you're going even further on that field but like there are a lot of cards out there where I'm just like oh yeah I'm not going to touch a stasis because I, I I want the game to keep going or, or even the card aura of silence is one that is like that's a really good card uh, that makes stuff more expensive for your opponents and you can also sacrifice it to destroy an artifact or enchantment at any time that card's amazing mm -hmm. and even that's one that i've been a little bit like this is one of probably like the better white cards in the format for removal right now but man that tax effect is so big that i'm feeling like i want to take that like that one feels meaner to me than a ghostly prison effect um and even then i don't know that i would call it mean compared to the other stuff out there like stasis but i just think it's funny that your examples were so polite but i also i don't like those extreme stacks cards and 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 I'm, I know that there are people out there, you know, we have stats on EDH Rec, this amazing website you may have heard of, Joey, <laughs> that shows that there are a lot of people out there that play stacks and they play stasis effects. I never do. That's just not the type of gameplay I enjoy playing myself. So, yeah, I, I don't have those cards to take out of decks, but, you know, I just I, I don't have the extreme versions to take out. So I'm just trying to use my personal examples of what I have been because, yes, Ghostly Prison slows down a game but it doesn't stop the game from happening. Right. I've just transitioned that even further and letting the pendulum swing even further to the other side. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things I'm, I'm conscious of is differentiating between whether or not a card is good for my deck winning a game and whether or not a card is good for my deck making a game fun. Because mm. those aren't always the same thing. Yep. Um, now, they can be, of course, but like to use a specific example, um, Hall of Gemstone is a great card in a mono green deck. And I, th I think Matt wound up playing it in a mono green deck as well and, and picked it up at some point. Um, but it's not a particularly fun deck or fun card to play in a deck. Yes, it's never hurts you at all. And it can shut down a bunch of decks entirely by preventing people from, from playing multicolor spells. It's very, very effective if you're playing mono green. I don't know if it creates a particularly enjoyable game state, especially when you are in our position where, like, we aren't playing with the same group of friends week in and week out. We play with one another, mm -hmm. but we, like, are playing on stream with people we maybe have never played with before, or I'm going to a shop that oftentimes has, you know, 50 to 60 people in, in a week, so I could be playing with strangers in every single pod. Um, 
So in that situation, I, I, I very much not only want to keep the game moving forward, but I don't want to find myself in a position where I'm making the game unfun. And those, those two things tend to go hand in hand, where those cards that just because they're good for your deck, achieving a win doesn't mean they make for the greatest game state, particularly mm-hmm. with strangers who you know, might not appreciate that kind of thing. And we said this a few episodes back, but it's a really good point along the lines of what you just said, Dana, where, yes, we largely will play with our, our own play groups that are pretty set out and pretty familiar with each other. But I still build my decks as if I'm playing or I'm going to play with somebody for the very first time. And I want yep. that experience to be something where the game's done and they say, okay, I would like to play with you again. Or we we were able to match power levels and you know your, your deck lived up to how you presented it. Mm-hmm. So part of that is a how I present how I actually do present it the words that I use the conversation that rule zero before the game but also the the cards that I'm putting in to support that strategy or support what I said making sure that you know if it, there is a card that I don't talk about it's still not going to be yet yeah, like the hall of gemstone where people just have a really hard time casting their spells it's it's a bunch of cards like that where I I if it is something unique or special it's still not going to be restrictive to the point where it's keeping people from actively playing the game. Sort of boiling this down to actually one of the heuristics that I brought down in my show notes here to bring in here that y'all have just totally been touching on uh, on this is that like a lot more recently, one of the questions that I ask myself when I'm looking at a card and wondering whether I put this into my deck is what are my opponents going to say when I cast this? What will my opponent's reaction to this card be? Will their reaction be, oh, or will their reaction be, oh? Like Mm, that's right. That's the kind of thing that I want to bear in mind as well, because like Matt, like you said, and making sure that your deck lives up to the way that you presented it, you want that to be authentic and you want other people to have fun. I'm not just building my deck for me. I'm building my deck for everyone to have a good time. And so that is a, a, a guiding heuristic, a mantra that is nice to apply to any card that you pull up. And, and and actually, it's sort of the kind of thing that like encourages me to play less of the cyclonic rifts, I guess, and more of the like I have a Virtus deck, for example, and I added the card Trailblazer to it. Do you all know what the card Trailblazer is? No, it's not very good. It's like a four mana instant that makes target creature unblockable, which is a weird effect for green to have. But it's fun for that deck. And I put that card in because I'm hoping to get that reaction from opponents where they're like, oh, what is that? Like, I want more of those moments. And that is a, a fun thing to encourage within yourself during deck building and to imagine what your opponents will say when you cast it, because that's really what it's all going to be about at the end of the day is did your opponents have fun with you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, try to create those moments, create those memories. Like that—that's what it's at least for me, really, all about. At the end of the day, is I want to—I want there to be a story. Yes, and that's the best way to have that story. Particularly if it's a good story, not man, I that guy was awful. <laughs> yeah. Right? You want it to be like that was a really fun time. Well, and and this kind of ties up to another note that I had put down is don't feel compelled to play the the quote correct card. Uh, you know, a lot of people love to optimize decks, and I have definitely done that. I, like I said, I say all the time, you know, I've I've lived that grinder life where it was all about optimizing and finding the, those right cards, and so I've diverged, and I I find that I'm just enjoying the game more when I'm optimizing for my own experience and for the experience of others. Like maybe I will have whelming wave in a deck instead of cyclonic rift because I'm playing. A Sea Monsters Tribal deck and my AC Tyrant of Gyro Straits deck. Mm. So it may not be the correct card to play Whelming Wave, but it also is something that I I find myself enjoying. One thing that I've I've picked up from the both of you over the course of doing this podcast is 
if I'm playing a theme deck, I'm going to adhere to that theme. I'm going to find different ways to express that theme in the deck that I maybe haven't done before. And so finding ways that I just, I enjoy playing the deck. I get to express myself. And sometimes that means I'm playing less staples because I'm doing things kind of that, that like I mentioned in my first point, it's still doing the same thing, but it's advancing the board state. It's it's finding different ways to get advantages that maybe aren't the the most played deck on EDH rec. That's something that I I enjoy doing because it's it's a fun way to express myself and find those fun experiences for other people. You know, and like Joy said, getting the what does that card do again? Let me see that. Like those types <laughs> of things. Yeah. Well, I, I really there's something that you said at the beginning there that I that really latched on for me. Of, about optimizing. So I am the type of person who really likes to explore what can this deck do. I want to explore every single facet of what this deck is about. And I want to push it to see what the full depth and breadth of that exploration will be. I want to know what this deck can do. And that involves a lot of tinkering, a lot of redoing, a lot of playtesting, a whole bunch of that. And that means that I'll usually want to go and grab those really juicy, wonderful, expensive, usually, uh, cards for that strategy. And very frequently, one of the ways that I think, like, I think the most obvious way that this manifests would be, for example, in my Yannette deck, I had a whole bunch of those cards like Vampiric Tutor to go and find an odd CMC card that Yannette could flip right into play right off the top that I would be able to guarantee that kind of thing. And that was me optimizing that deck. And over time, I definitely removed the tutors. And tutors are not the only example of this. They're just one of the easiest examples to talk about. But I have certainly noticed that I like to try out the optimized version and then scale it back from there. I like to see what is the deck really fully capable of. Then I can see where is the fun in all of that. And I think it might be difficult sometimes when you are building a deck, if you don't know what the ceiling on that deck is, it can be harder for you to trust going for some of those more quote fun cards instead of those more optimized cards it that might be the best way to say it i guess but like actually being able to flex fully into that space so that i can find where to retract feels like a, a thing that has been very informative for me when i'm deck building i completely agree with all that joey and have no challenge except for these stats i want to challenge these what stats. What, what is <laughs> that was a rather ham-fisted <laughs> challenge but uh i like sandwiches so let's do it I did not see that segue coming, but yeah, okay, Dana. <laughs> Dana, am I ever going to be the one to introduce Challenge the Stats on this podcast ever again? We've taken that no. away from you, Joe. You've <laughs> lost your Challenge the Stats segue. You, you, you were too slow getting to it, so we've decided to, uh, to, to take it from you. Challenge the Stats, currently blindsiding Joey since <laughs> July of 2022. All right, yeah, there's a bunch of data on EDHREC that we don't also agree with, so we'd love to challenge those stats. Dana, you're clearly so eager. Take us right to your challenge, my dude. I like to challenge the stats on a uh, card that isn't that old. Usually I like to, to I, I made this comment in our Discord, I like to challenge the stats on cards from 1996 that are in eight decks and should be in 12. <laughs> it's not, not going to be anything quite that obscure, but the card Echoing Truth is currently only in about 3,700 decks. It is uh, one in a blue for an instant. It says return target non-land permanent and all other permanents with the same name as that permanent to their owner's hands. It's just a great card in general, being able to bounce basically anything that isn't a land for two mana at instant speed is phenomenally useful. But the fact that you can hit anything that has the same name 
means you can destroy any swarm of tokens as well, including treasures. If you happen to have the ability to, or to have the need to hit treasures, you can do so and force people to either use them immediately or have them get bounced into the aether and turn into nothing. Um, even before treasures were a thing, it was a fantastically useful card that at least at one point in a game, I had to clever impersonate or something wearing lightning greaves to then bounce my clever impersonator back to my hand just to bounce the thing wearing greaves because I had to get it out of play. It lets you do things like that if you need to. It's just a fantastic card. And the fact that it's only in 3,700 decks, given all that it can do, it should see more play. So I'm going to step in here because this is hilarious to me that it keeps happening. Dana, you have already challenged Echoing Truth. No, I didn't. Did I really? You really have in episode 86. I'm looking at the challenge of stats spreadsheet, which you can see if you go to (laughs) patreon.com slash edhrightcast. So so people didn't listen back in episode 86 and they should have. And so I'm challenging it again. But not only only was it challenged by you, it was later submitted to us and we did it again in episode 112 because a listener (laughs) submitted it that I talked about. Oh, no. So oh, no. it has been challenged twice on this show and people still aren't listening to us. So. Every every hundred episodes or so, we we, we, we have to challenge us that's echoing truth. So we'll see you guys in 2024. Well, I actually have to throw another monkey wrench in here because, Dana, you mentioned treasures and I'm pretty sure that they could just sacrifice the treasure that you target in response to the echoing truth. So you wouldn't be able to hit all of the treasures because that one would go away. Yes, you'd have to hit your own or hit somebody who was being friendly to you. There you go. And willing to lose a couple of their treasures to have the whole thing pop yes hitting your own that is the clever trick about it so it is a clever challenge but wow get some new material dana (laughs) i guess yeah that's what happens when you've done 300 of these podcasts it all turns your dad jokes repeat like last week and your challenge of stats do as well Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i actually looked to him like i haven't talked about this and i I I just didn't go far i should have just searched for it instead of just scanning the list (laughs) that is so so funny all right matt how about you take us to your challenge I can I can take up the mantle this time and we'll, we'll go next. So the card that I'm challenging this week is a card that is getting played, I think, in way too many of one type of deck and not enough in another. And that card is Backdraft Hellkite. So hmm. Backdraft Hellkite is three red red for a 4-4 flying dragon that says whenever Backdraft Hellkite attacks, each instant and sorcery card in your graveyard gains flashback until end of turn and its flashback cost is equal to its mana cost. So if you look at the typical backdraft hellkite list of top commanders it is a bunch of dragons and mono red and i think that it's fine there but if you're looking at this in a dragon tribal deck chances are you're just playing a lot of dragons and this is just kind of filler for some of your utility cards and i just i don't like it i don't think it's going to do enough there to warrant a slot when there are so many dragons you could be playing in those dragon tribal decks In a deck, though, that I do like this a lot, that I don't see it showing up at all, is going to be Spellslinger decks. So if you look at the typical page for Spellslingers, there's a lot of really cool decks could be benefiting from giving instants and sorceries flashback. And the cool part about Backdraft Hellkite is that it is an attack trigger. It is not a combat damage trigger, which means even if they throw a 1-1 flying blocker in front of it, you're still going to get that trigger. That's the important part here is... You only need to attack with it. You do not need to actually connect. So if you're looking at a whole bunch of different cards like Veyron Voice of Duality, which loves to cast a bunch of spells, dump your hand with all of these Magecraft triggers that Veyron Voice of Duality loves to get. 
there's a lot of abilities that you can open up because you're casting all these other spells from the graveyard. If you have a gutter snipe in your deck, you open up another handful of graveyard cards that suddenly have flashback that you're going to be able to trigger over and over again. I just think there are so many cool, cool spell slinger commanders that fill up the graveyard extremely well, but then you're relying on some specific cards to give a few cards flashback. Past in Flames is a really good analogy for Backdraft Hellkite, which is already played in a ton of decks. And so I think if you want this effect on a stick, then I really think Backdraft Hellkite is worth looking at. It's currently not showing up on the page at all for Spellslinger decks. And I think that it should be, not maybe not every, not every deck is set up to take advantage of Backdraft Hellkite. It is still a five mana creature that doesn't have haste. So there is that downside to it. But I think it should be making its way into more Spellslinger decks moving forward. Matt, can I just say, I really like it when you start doing graveyard things and talking about graveyard stuff, because I just think everyone should play around with stuff in the graveyard, because the graveyard's the best. It wasn't graveyard stuff. It wasn't a black deck, so I, I don't know what you're talking about. I was trying to pay you a compliment. And I, oh, oh, yes, it was totally it was totally graveyard stuff, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm just going to move on to my challenge now, but That's fine. your insubordination has been noted. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I will move now to our listener-submitted challenge for the week, which this week comes from uh, a listener in our Discord who goes by Shade Elite Gruel Mage, which is a great username, by the way. And they point out that there's a certain nonbo that tends to be showing up a little bit in Blanca Ferocious Friend decks. That is one of the uh, secret layer street fighter, uh, secret layer drop kind of commanders that is a five mana five five human beast warrior. And its abilities are definitely very interesting. But the most important part of this challenge is actually that type line right there, human beast warrior, because the fact is that Blanca is a human. And that means the card Return of the Wild Speaker, which is currently showing up in 16% of these Blanca decks, isn't actually doing anything synergistic with this commander. Return of the Wild Speaker is one of our favorite green draw spells out there. It is so good. It's also a pump spell, but it only works on non-humans. It doesn't draw you cards for any creature you control that has the human type. And that would probably be perfectly fine for this card to still show up in the deck if there were a bunch of other non-humans in the deck that were really big that would draw you a lot of cards, but that doesn't seem to be the case for Blanca. A lot of Blanca's most popular creatures are really teensy, like Electrostatic Field, for example, which has zero power, or Birds of Paradise and Land of War Elves, which have zero and one power, respectively. So this is definitely the type of challenge that we love to see. This card does seem to be a bit overplayed for those Blanca decks. Make sure that you don't run Return of the Wild Speaker in a deck where the non-humans are really teensy and the commander itself, it shouldn't be a human if you're playing this deck. So great call, Shade. Thank you so much for your challenge. Okay, fellas, now let's get back into our topic, talking about those deck building mantras. And Dana, I think there was one that you had hoped to get to. So how about you go right back to it? Uh, certainly. Um, so one of the things I look to do when I'm building a deck is I want to run as many answers as I can um, particularly in slots that have a minimal opportunity cost. Mm. Um, we talked about this a few weeks ago when we were talking about how we always joke about how few basics I run. Yeah. And I made the point that I, I, that is true. I don't run a ton of basics in my decks, but it's not because I'm like jamming Golgari Guildgate into all of my lists. It's because I am running cards like Homeward Path that is an answer to to people stealing creatures and I can run it in place of a basic and not really hurt my mana base because I tend to play one and two color decks. 
and it gives me an answer in a slot that doesn't really use up a slot, so to speak. Mm. I run scavenger grounds for Bajookabog in any place I can. Mm. Um, cards like that give me answers to problems, and they let me do it without having to use up a deck slot. Now, that's not to say I don't also use up deck slots for answers as well, but like when I can put them on a land for one, or I can run a generous gift that solves a whole bunch of problems, or a sudden spoiling or something that can be used a whole bunch of ways, as many ways to solve problems as I can in a deck, I try to run both using cards that solve a bunch of problems or using cards that I can put in a slot that doesn't really cost me anything. So that's one of the first things I try to do when I'm building a deck too, is to to have as many things in that deck as possible that let me deal with somebody else that's trying to win without too badly crippling what I'm trying to do with the deck as well. So is that why you don't run any basics? Because you put as many spell lands <laughs> I mean, into the deck. In instead. large, that, that definitely is what sucks up a lot of the basic land slots in my deck, yes, is, is utility lands that, that are ways to deal with somebody else's problem. Well, this is also a point that actually resonates with me, specifically like the opportunity cost. So any uh, listeners out there who are familiar with the Upping the Average series that we do on YouTube, where we take the average deck from EDHREC and we make some swaps to it to make it go from a good start to a great start for you. A card that I am pretty commonly cutting, and longtime viewers will, uh, will will notice that I don't tend to keep Utter End in lists very much. It's a four mana card that can exile any target online permanent. And that sounds nice and all, but four mana to me is just too much. That is a big opportunity cost. Like if I'm leaving up four mana... That, th- that takes a big bite out of the stuff that I could have been doing on my turn. So I really prefer my pinpoint removal to be three mana, two mana, one mana, whenever possible. The flexibility on Utter End doesn't feel as good to me personally as it not taking up so much of the mana resources because that just makes it the, – the opportunity cost is actually pretty big on that one. It makes me feel like I have to use that card that round if I'm going to leave up four mana. And I don't want to feel that way about my removal spells. So Dana, even though I think you should play more basics, I am largely with you on this point about opportunity cost yeah and i think some of that also carries over to you know you talk about utter end that's a good example um it does do a bunch of different things but perhaps the price the the casting cost pushes it out of into a place where you don't want to play it but one mana less for a beast within well that's a whole different story then you're looking at a card where if i'm comparing beast within at three to something that just destroys creatures at two mana a uh, go for the throat or something in black I would much rather have the thing that destroys almost everything and give someone a beast and pay one more mana for it. There's definitely a cutoff. Like you don't want to, you know, be, there's only so many treasures you can staple onto a removal spell <laughs> where like it becomes unplayable um, at, at a certain mana cost. But like there's, there's definitely a midpoint you can find where you're willing to sacrifice a little bit of efficiency for utility and being able to have as many different ways to solve with many different problems as possible is very, very valuable. Yeah, very much. And actually, if it's okay for me to do one other quick plug here, there was a video that we also did on our YouTube about which cards to, quote, use, uh, which uses an acronym that is actually probably my strongest deck building heuristic. Um, It would be way too long to go into too much detail about it in this very podcast, so I definitely encourage folks to go and watch the video. The use is an acronym for universal scale and endurance, and those tend to be the things that I follow the most. I want cards that are really good in universal, like they are universally useful in many game scenarios rather than 
being really narrow. I like cards that scale well to the size of a multiplayer game, and I like cards that help give me enough endurance to stay an active part of a longer game experience. Um, and that is also a thing that I think kind of fits in very much with that a situation there, Dana, where like, yeah, I do want stuff that is going to help me get out of a variety of situations. But all of those things sometimes clash with each other, and you have to draw certain lines, which is definitely the difficult but also fun part of deck building. So anyway, yeah, check that video out. Link will be in the description. But that's enough from me. Matt, how about you hit us up with one of your deck building mantras next? So one thing I, I really have gotten a great amount of, of satisfaction out of in the past, I would say three or four decks, and then revisiting a lot of older decks that I've built too, is trying to limit the amount of overlap between the decks. Mm. We talk a lot on this show about how if you add a mana or two to a spell, you're going to get the same effect, but you're going to get a, maybe a specific benefit to whatever type of deck you're running. Uh, a really good example of this is, is a card that Dana posted about on Twitter with Asterian's Thirst, where you're able to get rid of a creature and then you put plus one, plus one counters onto one of your own creatures. And this kind of falls into the other two points that I've, I've brought up over the show so far, where it's cards that push the game forward. It's getting rid of a creature. It's answering a threat, but it's also making your threat better. And it's also like, it, maybe it's not the correct card, but it's also a card that I enjoy playing. It's, it's doing something different, but it's also getting me my own upside and my own benefits. So it's a way that I can give personality to all of my decks. I, I like mm. knowing that everything, yes, I, I still have all of the veggies. I still have all of those card categories that you need to make sure the deck is functioning, but I'm able to tie things into the deck specifically to give it more personality. To, so to make sure that it's not all the same, it's not a pile of, of 30 staples plus a few personality cards and then lands. Uh, another card that I, I really like in this area that landfall decks specifically I think is great is Broken Bond, where I can get rid of an artifact or enchantment so it's a disenchant, but then I can also get a land into play too. Mm. So there's just a bunch of just fun effects that if you just do a little bit of digging, get away from you know, your basic list of the top 30, 40 staples of the format, you can find all of these cards that are going to give you a little bit of personality, a little bit of flair to each and every deck while still getting that that role that you need filled. But there's always upside to be had if you just do a little bit of digging. And, and I would say that a good 40% of my enjoyment in the format lately has been being able to find and then show off some of these different cards in these categories that... It's not a card that I'm going to play in my other decks because there's no reason for it. But in this one deck, mm. it's a, it's an all-star. And so finding those types of cards has just been so much fun for me over the past couple of years, I would say. I'm so strongly reminded of your diatribe in a way early episode of the podcast against Wrath of God, mm -hmm. because Wrath of God is like four mana is simple. It's, it's great. But if you're playing a life gain deck, pay one more mana for Fumigate. If you're playing a, a, a Voltron deck, yeah. pay one more mana for Winds of Wrath so that your Voltron will survive the the, the Wrath effect. And this is another example of that. And uh, yeah, I am way into it. That's a great mantra. How are you, Joey? Any, any more ones that you'd kind of focus in on when you start brewing? You know, I think this actually kind of piggybacks right off of Matt's point there about finding unique experiences for those decks. A thing that I definitely pay a whole lot of attention to is whether or not the win condition will feel unique to this deck. Like when I build a deck, I do ask myself, where is this deck going? What is the destination of this deck? I don't want to just spin my wheels too much because I, I think a, a phrase we've said before in this show is that value isn't victory. You know, Brago repeatedly flickering a mold drifter uh, will draw you a lot of cards 
but that doesn't win you the game. You definitely need to have an end game in mind. And to that end, I want the way that my deck wins the game to feel like only that deck could have done exactly that win condition. I could absolutely put Torment of Hailfire in just about any of the decks that I have because nearly all of the decks that I play are, are black. Um, and Torment of Hailfire is a great card, but it's not going to create a memorable ending for me. Uh, something that is going to create a memorable ending for me is like when I use Sakashima's Will in my Will health deck to turn all of my zombies into a copy of my undead war chief which pumps all of them up so they each are giving each other like plus 20 plus 20 like that's the type of finish that i will remember whereas a torment of hellfire it just probably wouldn't so i like to try and locate during the brewing process those more unique finish uh the, the unique finishes to a game yeah i mean and that becomes that's a difficult thing to do hmm. um being able to to give those decks like a unique way to win a game and every time you make a new deck it becomes harder and harder too <laughs> so like not only is it difficult but like the more decks you have the more difficult it becomes well, and Dana, I think this is probably even more complicated for you. First of all, because I think of the three of us, you might brew the most often, which is at odds, I think, with an even further, maybe a hidden, like a secret mantra that maybe you don't even know this about yourself, or maybe you do acknowledge it. I don't know. But I feel like with you, not only do you want the win conditions to feel unique, but you want like your entire deck to feel unique. Like, I feel like that's also subconsciously a thing in your brain when you're building too, right? Like you want the deck oh, to feel completely yours, yeah, like completely original. It's not sorry. remotely subconscious. It's entirely conscious. Okay. I'm very, particularly, particularly <laughs> in recent years, like, like maybe once upon a time that wasn't the case, but very much the last three or four years when I go to brew a deck, I want it to look unlike anything anyone else is playing with that commander, if at all possible, um, which is also challenging um, <laughs> um, these days. But yeah, I know that's very much the thing I think I'm consciously trying to do is is find a way to make it be a unique experience, um, both to play against and as something that, that, that I've brewed, because I do tr treat like deck brewing as kind of a creative outlet. Mm. And so that's, that's one of the ways I try to do that is try to come up with a way to do this thing that isn't currently being done. Interesting. Matt, is that something that you search for as well? Or do you care about that at all? Like if your deck looks kind of similar to another person's deck, does that bug you in the way that it bugs Dana? Or um, are you normal? <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, so I definitely don't have the hipster pangs that I know Dana does. If a deck speaks to me, if a legendary creature gets me excited, I'm going to build it. And, and there have been some legends that nobody else has given two hoots about. And there have <laughs> been other commanders that other people have got also gotten excited about. So, I, honestly, it doesn't matter. Um, I play for my own enjoyment. And, and if that's part of what Dana gets enjoyment out of is, is finding legends that are forgotten about or not popular anymore or, or something that's just nobody else is doing mm. then that's that's rad that's that's what people play the game for is to, to find their different enjoyment and if somebody else wants to just copy pasta you know the, the top 100 cards and put them in a pile then the, i mean godspeed i guess it, yeah. it's just it, yeah everybody's able to enjoy the game is big enough the format of commander is big enough for everybody to play however they want to play so I personally, like, if something gets me excited, that's where I spend my time and energy on. Yeah. Uh, sometimes I stumble across something. That's how I got my Council of Four deck. I had zero anticipation of ever building an Azorius deck. And here we are. I, I opened a pack, saw a legend, and got excited to build a deck. Um, that's just how it works. And, and so it whatever works for Dana, it, I mean, he's old, so we would let him kind of... <laughs> we'll, we'll get him to bed after we get done recording this tonight. 
Uh, well, but no, I, that that actually is like deck building is time consuming. Mm-hmm. Like deck building can be very difficult. And sometimes you are like the thing that would actually excite you is just to like get a list and play. So that's why something like the average deck feature on EDH Rec is so useful to people. Like it is a really wonderful feature. And I, I don't want to potentially accidentally give off the vibe that we think that your deck must be unique. Like that's a, a personal enjoyment thing to Dana. If your deck looks exactly the same as anyone else's deck, that does not make it any less yours. A deck is yours because of the way that you play it, and a deck is yours because of the memories that you make with it. And that's that's really what it's all about. So that's just a thing that I wanted to make sure was, you know, out there because I think it's a positive thing to remind ourselves about. And just on this show, we're already capturing a very different, you know, range of experiences about the types of uniqueness and the types of joy that we get from that uniqueness, which I think is important to capture. And these are definitely probably not the only deck building mantras we have. I mean, I, I could spend another 10 minutes talking about the, how useful it is to maybe not run crazy powerful cards that are going to get removed right away, but instead to run things that are like really useful, but not useful enough that someone bothers to deal with those problems. Mm-hmm. That's definitely something I do you know, pay attention to. I've got a handful more, but I also, as, as much as I like our listeners, don't want to give away all of my secrets necessarily <laughs> when it comes to brewing. So I'm going to keep a couple to myself, I think, and, and we can we can wrap this up before I give away... Um, all of my deck building mantras. So, so you aren't going to tell players to, to goldfish their decks? Is that what you were going to tell them? Uh, yeah, right. Because exactly. I'm not going to agree yeah. with that one. Okay. All right. Oh, <laughs> no, I, I like it. Okay. So a nice outro, Matt with the hot take and Dana with the, the keep your secrets, old man. All right. Keep right. Yeah. I'm way into that. Yeah. Old right. wizard. That old. Can pry them from my cold dead fingers. <laughs> of course. All right. With that. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's keep a few more secrets. Um, maybe on a future episode, we'll dish out some more or we go. maybe you'll just have to find out what these secrets are by watching us play games at patreon.com. No, wait, exactly. twitch.tv slash edhrecast. Matt is so much better at these uh, plugs than I am. Uh, but yeah, yeah. Um, I, I've completely fumbled this, so we're just going to move to the outro. Let's. Uh, so you can find off. me on Twitter at Mathemus55. <laughs> thank, <laughs> thank you for cutting me off. <laughs> and you can find us playing games Wednesday evenings at twitch.tv slash EDHRetCast. Or you can support the show directly at patreon.com slash EDHRetCast. Whichever you do, we definitely appreciate both of them. So yeah, you can do that. And uh, Dana, where can people find you? Because Joey can't be trusted with the outro. <laughs> you can find me on Twitter at Dana Roach. You can hear me on our podcast at CMDR Central. I'm writing articles for EDH Rec and for Commander's Herald. And you can find all of us together at patreon.com slash EDHRECcast. And I'm Joey Egg on my face Schultz. You can find me at <laughs> Joseph M. Schultz on Twitter. And you can find the cast at EDHRECcast on Facebook and on Twitter. Plus, if you've got a question for us, you can contact us at EDHRECcast at gmail.com. Our thanks go out once again to Chase for assisting me with the post-production of the show. You can find them online at Mana Curves. And listeners, we'll be back at you next week with more data and insights. But until then, remember, EDH wreck your deck before you wreck your deck. <laughs>